Flashback at a feast. What am I doing here in New College Hall, about to read my poem to a hundred dinner guests? How did I get here? A subjective twenty-five-year-old, objectively bewildered to find himself celebrating his seventieth circuit of the sun. Looking around the long, candle-lit table, with its polished silver and sparkling wine glasses, reflecting flashes of wit and sparkling sentences, I indulge my mind in a series of quick-firing flashbacks. Back to childhood in colonial Africa, amid big lazy butterflies. The peppery taste of nasturtium leaves, stolen from the lost Lilongwe garden. The taste of mango, more than sweet, spiced by a whiff of turpentine and sulphur. Boarding school in the pine-scented Vumba Mountains of Zimbabwe, and then back home in England, beneath the heavenward spires of Salisbury and Arundel. Undergraduate days, damsel dreaming among Oxford's punts and spires, and the dawning of an interest in science and the deep philosophical questions which only science can answer. Early forays into research and teaching at Oxford and Berkeley. The return to Oxford as an eager young lecturer, more research, mostly collaborating with my first wife, Marion, whom I can see at the table here in New College. And then my first book, The Selfish Gene. Those swift memories take me to the age of 35, halfway to today's landmark birthday. They milestone the years covered by my first book of memoirs, An Appetite for Wonder. My 35th birthday recalled to me an article by the humorist Alan Corran about his own. Corran was mock-depressed by the thought that he had reached half-time and it was now downhill all the way. I didn't feel the same, perhaps because I was just putting the finishing touches to my first rather youthful book and was looking forward to publication and its aftermath. One aspect of that aftermath was being pitchforked by the unexpectedly high sales of the book into the company of those who are regularly asked by journalists scratching around for column inches to list their ideal gathering of dinner-party guests. In the days when I used to respond to that kind of request, I would invite some great scientists as a matter of course, but also writers and creative spirits of all kinds. Indeed, any of those lists would probably have included at least fifteen of those actually attending my birthday dinner today, among them novelists, playwrights, television personalities, musicians, comedians, historians, publishers, actors, and multinational business tycoons. Thirty-five years ago, I think to myself, as I spot familiar faces around the table, such a mix of literary and artistic guests at a scientist's birthday dinner would have seemed unlikely. Has the zeitgeist changed since C.P. Snow lamented the chasm between scientific and literary culture? What has happened in the years covered by my dinner-time musing? My reverie jumps me into the middle of the period, and I conjure the giant unforgettable figure of Douglas Adams, sadly absent from the feast. In 1996, when I was 55 and he ten years younger, I had a televised conversation with him for a Channel 4 documentary called Break the Science Barrier. The programme's purpose was precisely to show that science needed to burst into the wider culture, and my interview with Douglas was the high spot. Here is part of what he said. I think the role of the novel has changed a little bit. In the 19th century, the novel was where you went to get your serious reflections and questionings about life. You go to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Nowadays, of course, you know the scientists actually tell much more about such issues than you would ever get from novelists. 
so I think that for the real solid red meat of what I read, I go to science books and read some novels for light relief. Could this be a part of what has changed? Have novelists, journalists and others of the kind C.P. Snow would have planted firmly in his first culture increasingly come to embrace the second? Might Douglas, if he were still living, now go back to the novel and uncover some of what he had moved to science to find, twenty-five years after he had read English at Cambridge, Ian McEwan, say, or A.S. Byatt, or other novelists who love science such as Philip Pullman or Martin Amis, William Boyd or Barbara Kingsolver? Then there are highly successful science-inspired plays in the tradition of Tom Stoppard and Michael Frayne. Could this starry dinner party, put together for me by my wife Lala Ward, an artist and actress herself well-read in science, be some kind of symbol of a change in the culture, as well as a personal landmark in my life?